All right, right now, if you would, I'd love for you to turn to the book of Habakkuk. That's where we're at in our study of the minor prophets. It's on page 662 in the Pew Bibles or in the Bibles underneath the seats. So turn there. We're going to get to Habakkuk in just a moment. As I think all of us know, probably by now, there was another tragedy, another shooting in the last week. 17 students were killed in Florida, north of Miami, at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. They were innocent victims of gun violence and the gun culture that is present in the United States. They represent not quite 1% of the 1,770 people. I'll put that number up on the screen here. 1,770 people that have been killed in mass shootings in the United States since 1966 when the first attack like this took place at the University of Texas. Some of you are probably old enough to remember, and I am. I can remember when this was broadcast on the news, and then later on when I lived in Texas for a while, I went and I saw the place where a mentally ill student went up into the clock tower at the University of Texas, took a rifle with him, and proceeded to shoot 17 students on the U of T campus. Same number as what were killed at the high school in the last week. And this is a tragedy. It's awful. We tend to look at this and automatically just get up in arms. And I get that. And there's a part of me that that gets angry probably just like you do when I hear about that kind of incident. This one's interesting in that they actually caught the guy. You know, most of these cases, they end up killing themselves, but in this case, they actually caught the guy. And it'd be interesting to see what would happen, what happens with all of that. Well, despite the fact that that's all horrible, there are some other figures this morning that I want you to look at. Like, for example, this one. In a hundred days... In 1994, around a million people were killed in Rwanda. And in fact, I I remember Mike Idden. Some of you will remember Mike and Holly Idden, who were part of this church. And Mike Idden, who was in the military here in Canada, was in this church. He served here for a while in Calgary. And and he left from Calgary to go to Rwanda. It wasn't long after that that Mike and Holly ended up moving back to Victoria, where they had previously been. So I knew Mike and Holly in Victoria. Holly's the daughter of Jim Hawkins, whom many of you know. And I remember when Mike came to Victoria after having first gone to Rwanda and then came back here and then moved back to Victoria. And at some point, I said to him, what was it like? And he simply said, Kelly, I can't begin to describe it and I won't. And what he was talking about was the carnage that he and the other United Nations peacekeepers went through as they went to Rwanda and tried to kill, kill, to clean up the mess of that kind of mass murdering that went on. That was a hundred days that that took place in 1994. Here's another number. Since 2006... Since 2006, that's the year that I came here, there have been 120,000 people who've been killed in the Mexican drug wars. That's one country, not in an actual military conflict or anything, just in the drug wars 
in Mexico. 120,000 people have been killed. Since 2014, which is four years ago, 30,000 people have been killed by ISIS. And since 2011, when rebellion broke out in Syria as the rebels worked against the Syrian government, 470,000 Syrians have been killed and millions displaced. That again is quite a figure. Now all of this is amazing, but none of it even begins to touch what has taken place in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. National Republic, DN, can't remember the initials there. Maybe the Democratic National Republic of Congo. Look at this. This is in the last 20 years. Five million people have been killed in the Congo in the last 20 years. I mean, that's approaching, obviously, statistics like what we would talk about if we're talking about the Holocaust, the six million Jews. And none of these figures that I have on the screen right now like all of those have taken place just in the last 25 years. None of those include World War I figures. None of those include World War II figures. That doesn't talk about the communist takeover of China. We're not talking here about the figures of Stalin's regime. We're not talking about the Korean War. We're not talking about Vietnam War figures. We're not talking about the killing fields of Cambodia. All of this has taken place in the last... 25 years. Which means that all of this has taken place approximately in the time that I've been since my 35th birthday. I was 35 years old and all of these things took place since then. And notice that these figures don't include things like 3,000 people being killed at 9-11. These figures don't talk about all the terrorist attacks that have taken place in the last few years. These figures don't talk about the 70,000 people in North America annually who die from drug overdose. I'm talking about illegal drug overdose. There are thousands more, by the way, who die from things like alcohol addiction, uh, from prescription drugs. I mean, there's all kinds of things that happen. But this is just, in North America, annually, 70,000 people die from illegal drug overdose. And of course, what we were talking about a moment ago in terms of the, uh, the 1,770 attacks that have taken place in the United States with, with uh, gun violence doesn't even begin to touch the real point about gun violence in the United States. I mean, there's been years when Chicago alone has a thousand deaths from gun violence. In fact, I would say something like this. I would say that if you toll all of this up and you look at it from the perspective that I'm trying to look at it from this morning, that the shootings in the United States, instead of shocking us, instead of blowing us away, instead of seeming like they're so unusual and out of step, are in fact, I would say, normal for humankind. That's more the fact. 
We're blown away by the 1,770 deaths that have occurred because they're innocents, because they're children, because they're school shootings, or people sitting in a movie theater, or people watching a concert. And so all of that blows us away because these are just innocents. They're not participating in some kind of war. They're just there with their families, and all of a sudden they're shot, and it just it affects us so powerfully emotionally because of that circumstance. But 1,770 is really just a drop in the bucket compared to the way that our world and even our own culture operates on a daily basis. You know, we live in this rarefied air of Canada. Like, it's wonderful to be here. We live in a calm, peaceful kind of society. You get outside our borders, and it is amazing what is taking place in the world. It's incredible. And they have to deal with this constantly. This is not just a one-time occurrence. But constantly, people around the globe they experience on a moment-by-moment basis what shocks us. And they experience it constantly. And so I would say it's no wonder that people would sometimes wonder what in the world God is doing. People wonder why God doesn't intervene. And a lot of people just stop believing Others are confused, they're mystified, but they keep believing. There's hardly anybody who doesn't think this is a big problem. And in fact, it is a big problem. It's a huge problem. And I'm not talking about 1,770. That's bad enough. But how about 5 million people in the Democratic National Republic of Congo in the last 20 years? And isn't it striking... Like, I I made the comment to the staff this week, you know, I I hear now about the shooting in Florida, and it affects me. But, you know, I watched the news, and then I went on with the rest of my day. I think 30 years ago, if that would have happened, I would have been watching it all day long. I would have been paying attention, caught up in the moment, by the fact that another 17 children had been killed. It would have captured my attention for the whole day 30 years ago. Now it's like another one. What are we having for lunch? And then five million people are killed in the last 20 years in the Congo. And the fact is, until I showed it on the screen, most of you had no idea. But that's the kind of world in which we live. And it makes sense that in occasions like this, we would say, God, what are you doing? And it's not... Only we who asks the questions, who we who ask the question. People all over the world ask the question. Is it wrong? Is it a mistake to ask the question? Should we have enough faith where we simply don't ask the question at all? And I would say, not necessarily. I actually think God is quite big enough to handle our questions. And in fact, that's where we get to Habakkuk. And so I want you to go there. Look at Habakkuk. Page 662 in the pew uh, Bibles, in the the Bibles under the seat. And I want us to read the first few verses here. And I want you to notice what the prophet is doing here. Most minor prophets 
are declarations from the prophet about what God wants for the people. In this case, what we have is a prophet who himself is asking some questions of God. And so he says in chapter 1, verse 1, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet received, how long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you don't listen? Boy, talk about asking God questions. Or cry out to you, violence, but you don't save. Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict and it abounds. Therefore the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. Now I'll tell you, this is interesting because these four verses are calculated really by the prophet to be speaking not of the world in general, but about Israel itself. He's just talking about Israel at this point. And he's wanting to know why it is that he, as a man who's seeking after God, looks around his brothers and sisters and says, man, look at the violence. Look at the injustice. Look at the way that people are treating people within the kingdom of God. So the Lord answers. Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed. For I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe, even if you were told. I'm raising up the Babylonians. And so God says to them, I'm going to do something drastic here. I'm going to actually raise up a people who is going to defeat some of this injustice. I'm going to do something that will take care of the problem, at least at some level. Which in one way sounds good. But in another way, I think just aggravates the prophet even more. Because before, he's at least talking about what Israel's doing and God's going to bring his judgment upon Israel. But now, who's bringing that judgment? It's not God. God says, I'm bringing the Babylonians. There's a problem with that. The Babylonians are actually way worse in terms of their devotion to God than what the Israelites are. And so the prophet then has a problem with this. What are we talking about here, God? Look at verse 12 in chapter 1. O Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, we will not die. O Lord, you have appointed them to execute judgment? O Rock, you have ordained them to punish? And there's no question marks here in the text, but I think there's a question mark in the text. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? You've made men like fish in the sea, like sea creatures that have no ruler. In other words, chaos. The wicked foe pulls all of them up with hooks. He catches them in his net. This is what the wicked do to the net, to the fish. He gathers them up in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and burns incense to his dragnet. In other words, Here we've got Babylon going and wreaking havoc everywhere they go. And then right at the core, more than anything else, they're idolatrous. It's as if they worship their own nets. Therefore, he sacrifices to a net, burns incense to his dragnet, for by his net he lives in luxury and enjoys the choicest food. Is he to keep on emptying his net, destroying nations without mercy? The prophet says to God, And then he ends with these words. 
I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. What am I supposed to say about what you're doing, God? What is to be my comment here? And so the prophet stands and in a sense rebukes the Lord of glory because he doesn't understand what it is that God is doing. Part of the point for this morning is that the prophet is not content with a superficial answer. And I have to admit, I like that. I like Habakkuk. Habakkuk is not one of these religious folks who kind of partially asks the question about what God is doing, but then doesn't really want an answer. He's got an answer already in in his own mind. And I think Habakkuk is, in contrast to that, very serious. I think he is serious about asking God, God, what are you doing? And I like that. It's a genuine complaint. And I like it because sometimes I have genuine complaints. And I talk to people all the time who have genuine complaints and who say to the Lord, what are you doing? And they don't get it. And I don't get it. Israel is bad, but Babylon is far worse. Why would God permit such wickedness? So I would say the prophet actually has a legitimate complaint. God, what are you doing? If you care for people, for those whom you've created and loved, why would you seem to perpetuate the violence? Surely you must have more in mind than Babylon as a solution. Don't we at least sometimes think that we too have a legitimate complaint? Like, isn't it the case that when you look around at our world and you can quote these statistics that I've quoted, you can do this yourself so easily from the internet, when you look at all of that, don't you sometimes think, yeah, like what really is going on here? And you have brothers and sisters, people that you know, who have said in the past they've loved the Lord and they have decided that they don't. And the reason they don't is because of these very things. Why is it that a troubled, a troubled nation like the United States sits in a position of power, sometimes acting like the policeman for the world, when it itself has such problems? God, you must have something in mind other than the United States. You must have something other in mind than Babylon. And then I think it's bigger than that. Isn't a better question something like, God, you must have more in mind than leaving us to ourselves? God, we clearly can't do this. We've created a world in which violence is our norm. Hate is our currency. Self-centeredness is our agenda. We in Canada, we may think that somehow we're overcoming this or we're gonna, we will overcome it. The general, general tendency in the world is towards degradation, but somehow we're going to get beyond that. And I think when we think that way, that we're kidding ourselves. And the reason why is because this is not a problem of just the United States or the countries outside Canada. I would say that violence, evil, and turmoil is instead the human condition. And it will always be. 
and we are foolish to think that we're somehow going to overcome the tendencies of humanity. We're foolish to think that some changes in U.S. policy about firearm possession are going to make violence go away. Is it a start, perhaps? It's better than nothing. But it seems to me that fixing the violence in the United States and around the world by creating legislation against for gun control in the United States is like sticking a finger in the dike. The flood waters are still there. The dike is still going to crack. It may be somehow a noble action to say, let's put something on gun control, but it is not going to prevent the flood because the dam is eroding. Now, we can't read the rest of this book And we're going to look at three important parts here that we need to look at. But we can't read the rest of this book and and not get some kind of feel, I think, for what God ultimately wants to do in light of where our world is at. So three things I want you to look at. The first one is in chapter 2, verse 6. And there's about four woes here that come. Will not all of them taunt him with ridicule and scorn, saying, he's talking about Babylon, and saying, this is what's going to happen to Babylon. Woe to him who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by extortion. How long must this go on? Will not your debtors suddenly arise? Will they not wake up and make you tremble? Then you will become their victim. Because you have plundered many nations, the peoples who are left will plunder you. For you have shed man's blood, you've destroyed lands and cities, and everyone in them. And so Babylon, you're going to get yours. Woe to you, he says. Then verse 9, woe to him who builds his realm by unjust gain, to set his nest on high, to escape the clutches of ruin. You've plotted the ruin of many peoples. Shaming your own house and forfeiting your life, the stones of the wall will cry out and the beams of the woodwork will echo it. And so in other words, everything is going to come down upon you eventually because this is what you've done, Babylon. There's another woe in verse 12. I won't read all of that. There's another woe in verse 15. I won't read all of that. There's another woe in verse 19. Woe to him who says to the wood, come to life or to lifeless stone, wake up. Can it give guidance? In other words, woe to those who would look elsewhere for all kinds of answers. The answer is, God is going to do something to Babylon. And so that's the first answer. God is not going to let the evil that goes on continue. He's not going to stop it. Or I'm sorry, he's not going to let it go on without stopping this carnage. The world is going to be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord eventually. Let the world keep silent before him and let him work, the text says. So the point is, first, that God is indeed going to stop it. The second answer, those are the woes. The second answer is the recounting of his deeds. Look at chapter 3, verses 3 through 15. If the first answer is, woe to the nation who's there, The second answer is, God has done great things in the past, and he's going to do them again. Look at verse 3. God came from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. 
His glory covered the heavens and his praise filled the earth. His splendor was like the sunrise. Rays flashed from his hand where his power was hidden. Plague went before him. Pestilence followed his steps. He stood and shook the earth. He looked and made the nations tremble. The ancient mountains crumbled and the ancient hills collapsed. His ways are eternal. I saw the tents of Cushion in distress, the dwellings of Midian in anguish. And the point is that God throughout his history has continued to do powerful things. Were you angry with the rivers, O Lord? Was your wrath against the streams? Did you rage against the sea when you rode with your horses and your victorious chariots? God is over nature. He's over people. He's going to take care of everything eventually. So the prophet recounts the deeds of God and says, on him we can depend. And then the third answer is that the righteous are going to live by faith. And it's fascinating. Go back to chapter 2. Habakkuk has just made this claim against God, this complaint against God. And in chapter 2, verse 2, here's the answer. Then the Lord replied to this prophet who dares question him. Write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. In other words, I'm about to give you an answer and I'm about to do something. You need to listen to what I'm about to say. He builds it up here and then makes a great statement. See, he is puffed up. His desires are not upright. That's about Babylon. But what is the answer to that? But the righteous will live by his faith. Now what's fascinating is that that passage is quoted over and over and over again in the New Testament with reference to Jesus. It keeps talking about Messiah. It keeps saying that Jesus is going to come. And so how is this going to end? Ultimately it ends with God saying, I am going to take care of this. But what's called for in the meantime is people to listen and to wait and to have faith. Because I will send Messiah and I will do something. And when it looks like everything around us is crumbling and people are being killed, innocents wiped out in a matter of moments, I'm going to send Messiah and he is eventually going to take care of all of this that grieves us so much. So I want you to look at chapter 3 verse 16. After all that the prophet has said, he's listened to God and says, I heard and my heart pounded, my lips quivered at the sound, decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. Yet, I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, even though everything looks bleak. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God, my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go to the heights. And so the answer is that even though things are crumbling everywhere, God ultimately is going to save humankind and his 
people. And it's interesting, why is it that he shods the feet of the deer? Why is it that he makes them strong? Why do the feet of the deer become sure-footed? So that his people can have confidence in him. And the text says, so they can run. What does God want us to do? I certainly don't think he wants us to just sit and complain. He doesn't want us to sit and wring our hands. He doesn't want us to just sit and grieve. What God wants is for us, because of the sure feet that he gives us in our faithfulness, he wants us to run. And this is nothing more than the impact of the kingdom of God in our world. We are to be an influence in our world. We're supposed to impact things. And so the way that things are going to change is not because of legislation. The things in our world will change when God's people, in their faithfulness to him, become dear. When we start running, confident in how it is that God has cared for us always and will eventually end this in his and our favor. And so we have some work to do. Our world is really messed up. All kinds of problems. And God gives us the strength and the ability to do something about it. That starts when Messiah comes. And because he came, we have a chance to do something to impact our world. I pray that you do. I pray you take advantage of the opportunities you have to impact our world for good. God gives us the strength and the confidence, the assurance to do so. Let's pray. Lord, we have so many problems in our world. And you know, you've you've heard me complain. You you've heard me God say, "What are you doing? Why don't you come?" The fact is, you did come. You came in one who empowers us and enables us to impact our world in significant ways. You've given us strength. You have shod our feet and made them sure. And so help us to run. Help us to run for you in our world with your impact and to to influence and change our world for you. Help us to do it every day as we face the world around us, we pray through Jesus. Amen.